If you have your Bibles, uh, please go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians uh, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you should probably have a Bible in front of you. And if not, we're going to have the scripture uh, on the screen. So Philippians uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we're going to do 11 verses this morning. And so starting in uh, verse 1, it says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in nature, in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that a great great, uh, uh, piece of scripture? And so we're we're on a series uh, of messages that we're calling Press On. And we're talking about this whole idea of our calling as as Christians. And this letter that we're looking at, the letter uh, of uh, Philippians, is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a Roman colony called Philippi. And in that Roman colony, it was very hard to be a Christian because there was a lot of retired soldiers, so there was a lot of patriotism toward Rome. And so being a follower of Jesus meant that you had to replace the allegiance that you have pledged uh, toward Rome and you would pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. So there was a lot of of pushback and it made it very hard to be a Christian. Uh, Philippi was actually the first church that Paul uh, established and he wrote uh, a letter to this church as uh, a response uh, for a, uh, a financial gift that he had received. And do you guys remember the name of the guy who uh, took the financial gift? You guys don't remember? Epaphroditus? It's a great name. It's a great name. Epaphroditus. Any Epaphroditus is here? No? Okay. Good, good. I was going to pick on you. But anyway, so that's the name of the guy that, uh, that sent the financial gift. And, and Paul is writing this letter as a thank you. So it's basically a, a thank you letter. And in this letter, he's talking about just different aspects of what it means. This is what the, the letter is all about. What it means for each one of the people who are reading the letter. What it means to reflect the life of Jesus in your own life. So be Christ-like is what the message is about today. Be, be Christ-like. Now, how many of you guys are exactly like Jesus? No, right? Okay, so this is, a, this is a tall order. This is a hard thing that the Apostle Paul is challenging the church to be. So how have you, have you ever been challenged to do something that you feel that is absolutely impossible? Like, how am I even going to do this? Okay, have, do you guys know um, I Love Lucy? I love Lucy. You guys remember that? Okay, so I have a little clip that I want to show you to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. You guys remember this one?
All right. Yeah, so doesn't, doesn't life feel like that sometimes? Like, how am I supposed to do this? I mean, this is, this, sometimes life seems impossible. Like, life itself is an impossible challenge. Your parenting, anyone? Marriage? Finances? Your job? Like, how, how do we get through this? And then, and then you come to a space like this, and we have scriptures that we're reading, like, for example, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. I'm like, on top of everything else? Really? Be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Really? Love, love one another as I have loved you. You really expect me to do this? Sometimes you think about that, right? It's like what Lucy was saying. I think we're fighting a losing game. Life feels like that sometimes. This seems like an impossible task. And I want to tell you this morning, it actually is. It is impossible. Like no one can actually have the mindset of Jesus Christ, Right? No one can actually be perfect as the Father of Jesus in heaven is perfect, right? No one can actually love one another exactly how Jesus loved. Like, this is an impossible task. And so the question becomes, why would we be asked to do something that is actually impossible? You see, I grew up believing that, that this was an actual requirement for, for us to be able to be saved, you got to do these things in order for you to be saved, to be in, to be part of the group that Jesus looks at and says, okay, you guys have done well enough, so now you can actually be part of my family. I grew up believing. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus or else. I grew up believing. Be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect or else. I grew up believing. Love one another as I have loved you or else. You know? However... If this was the requirements for salvation, we're all doomed, 
Like there's no, like, like if that's the requirement for salvation, there's no hope for anyone ever. So I'm going to say it again, something that I have said before in the past, a lot, ad nauseum. You've heard it, like, oh, I've heard this one before, but it's so important for us to remember this. Salvation comes only and exclusively as a result of what Christ did for us, not anything that we do or fail to do, period, end of story. And so how we respond to this, how do we respond to what Christ has already finished for us? How, how do we respond to this? Well, we believe. We, we, we believe the good news of what Christ did for us. That's the key. We, we, we believe. That's it. But here's where the confusion is. is sometimes I think that we misunderstand what believing actually means. What is, what is belief? So we say salvation, right, by grace, through faith. What does faith mean? What does belief mean? And the problem is that we get, at, we get that confused. We think that belief is saying you believe. Oh, I believe. Or, or like a mental assertion, like, yes, I believe that all the things that Christ did are true. That you're saying that. So you think that that is what actual belief means, which brings me to a story that I've shared before, the story of the, the guy that, that puts a wire between two tall buildings and is walking the wire, and everyone's like super excited about this guy walking the wire, and then he grabs a wheelbarrow and goes around, and everyone's excited about all the things that this guy is doing, and then finally he says, hey, how many of you guys believe that I can walk this wire from one side of the building to the other side, not just with the wheelbarrow, but with someone inside it? Everyone's like, yes, I know you can do it. I truly believe that you can do it. Okay, who's going to volunteer? You see, you can say you believe something, but the evidence of your belief is not saying that you believe or mentally asserting something. The evidence of your actual belief, that, that belief that will save you, is not what you say you believe, but it's how you live your life. James says, faith without works is dead. It's important for us to understand this. And that's what this series is all about. This sermon series is all about that. It's about pressing on. See, we're on a pathway, and there's a certain way that we are called to, lead, to live. Once you have believed the good news, then you enter into a process. We've talked about a little bit called sanctification. It means that you walk, you're walking in this, this pathway, and as you walk this pathway, you become more and more like Christ. There's no way around this. This is part of the Christian life. And it's not that you automatically have the same mindset of Jesus. It's not that you automatically are perfect like God. Not that you automatically begin to love others like Jesus loved them. In fact, this is not meant to be a burden on you. A burden of guilt that, that judges you every time you fall short. That's not what it is. It's not, oh, if you're not perfect, then you're out. No, this is meant to be an orientation. This is meant to be a north star, like the perfection of a Christ. Well, that's, that's the way we need to go. Oh, I'm deviating a little bit. Okay, I remember that's the way. Christ is the way. So you walk down this path. There's this way that we are called to do life. That's what Paul is talking about. Living your life in a way that reflects the story of Jesus. It's way beyond words. It's how you live your life. I want to be like Christ. What is, what is Christ like? That's what I want to be like. So Paul is talking about this whole idea of having the mindset of Christ. 
So that's what I want to challenge us to talk about this morning. How do we have the mindset of Christ? Um, He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he says something right before that. He says this. He says, in your relationships. In your relationships, have the same mind as Jesus. So today I want to talk a little bit about that. In your relationships. This is about relationships. In your marriage, be like Christ. With your friendships, be like Christ. With your siblings, be like Christ. With your kids, be like Christ. As a parent, be like Christ. Now, what does this mean? What does this exactly mean for us to be like Christ in our relationships? Well, what did God send his son into the world to do? It's the first question. John three seventeen says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How? Through the forgiveness of sins, okay? And we have been given a ministry, like we as Christians have been given a ministry, something that we are meant to administrate, meant to to give out. Paul describes it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. That is our ministry. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So Jesus wasn't counting people's sins against him, okay? We're to reflect that. How do we do that with other people? And he has committed us the message of reconciliation. So not only has God reconciled us to himself, which is important to understand, God reconciled us to to himself. So what does reconciliation mean? Well, it's something that that was together at one point and that was broken. Think of a glass that broke, right? And so that glass was once together and it broke. And And then God is bringing us back together. So someone that's bringing back together something that was, that had been broken and now is brought back to its original intent. So you look in Genesis, we had a good relationship with God. We were close. We were united with God. In Genesis, we broke that relationship. And then the verse is telling us that God, this is all God, by the way, God is reconciling us to himself in Christ. That's, that's what we're a part of, and that's all God. God did this whole thing. But so he, did, he finished that work. And what we're called to do now is to be ministers of reconciliation. How? Just by talking to people and saying, hey, you better repent, you better do better, do better, try harder. No, we're meant to to reflect the life of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, how are you doing in your reconciling yourself or forgiving those who have sinned against you? That's what this is all about. That's our responsibilities. You see, this is the whole message right here. Christians, Christians need to be the best forgivers that anyone has ever met. You need to be great at forgiving. You need to have a PhD in forgiveness. You need to be that person. They're like, how? He wronged him so many times. I would have never gone that far. We are called to be that because Christ was that for us. How can we be ministers of the story of reconciliation when we are unable to forgive our father, our mother, our sibling, our friend, our coworker? That's the message today. Pastor, you may say, you don't know my story. Like, you have no idea what they did to me. And you're right. I don't know. 
fact, my wife and I were having a conversation as we were walking our dog. This was uh, last week. We were just talking about a few things, and we have some friends that are going through some difficult times right now. Uh, marriage issues, etc. Some are on the verge of divorce, you know. And the question that came up was, so how many times is she supposed to forgive him? Like, how many times is she supposed to forgive this guy? And on the other hand, how many times is he supposed to forgive her? And I'm like, okay, do you want the, the Josh answer or do you want the pastor answer? Because the jo- Josh answer is twice. Once, that's okay. But twice, you're done. But the pastor answer or the Christian answer is with a question. So you have to answer the answer like Jesus answers questions with a question. So the answer to the question of how many times should she forgive him is simply this. How much did Jesus forgive you? And how do I know that this is the answer? Because this is exactly what Peter asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 and 22 says this, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, which basically is saying there is no limit to the amount of times that you should forgive someone who sins against you. What is he saying? Well, he, Jesus himself explains what he means through a parable. He talks about a parable of, about a king who was owed, someone owed him $7 billion dollars. And he forgives this person. And then that person walks off and finds someone who owes him $300. And he chokes him and sends him to prison. Because he owed him that money. And you may listen to that story like the people were listening in that moment. And they were like, man, how does he not, like how does he not understand everything that he's been forgiven? $7 billion. I mean, it was meant to be a shock factor, right? $7 billion compared to $300. Like, does he not, does he not understand how much he has been forgiven. Clearly he doesn't understand because if he understood, then he would have let him go. So Jesus is making the point of saying, you see, um, do you understand how much you've been forgiven? Do you understand how much you have been forgiven by God? Do you understand? Do you understand it? You may say, yeah, I understand it. Okay, you can tell me that you understand it until you are blue in the face. But the only true evidence of the fact that you actually understand what Christ did for you is one thing and one thing only. How much are you willing to forgive someone? That's the evidence. That, that's, that's, that's how you know if you actually believe what Christ did for you. Everything else is just words. You see, the evidence that you have truly understood or believed the forgiveness you have received is not your ability, ability to articulate what Jesus did, but only your ability to forgive others. Period. End of story. Tell me how easy it is for you to forgive, and I will tell you the depth of your understanding of the forgiveness you have received. So let me ask you this, and I'm asking myself this very question. As I'm asking you, I'm asking me. The question is this, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you, are you holding on to unforgiveness? Family, friends, the guy that owes you money, the guy 
the girl that owes you an apology, the guy or the girl that committed an injustice against you, abuse, etc. You may say, Pastor, you don't understand. They don't deserve forgiveness. And honestly, that's precisely the point. You see, the story that Jesus is talking about of the guy that is strangling the other person that owes him $300, he never says he didn't owe him the money. He did actually owe him the money. That's not the point. The same is true for you. Does this person owe you an apology? Probably. Were you a victim of an injustice? Possibly. Are you entitled to demand restitution? Very likely. So the point is not whether or not they owe you or not. The point is, do you and do I understand what you have been forgiven from? It's a matter of perspective. That's why Jesus tells this story to Peter. He asks, how many times should I forgive? How many times should I forgive someone who wrongs me? How many times has Jesus forgiven you? If you believe Jesus has forgiven you a little, you will forgive a little. If you believe that Jesus has forgiven you a lot, you will forgive a lot, period. We're called to forgive like Jesus did. He says, in, our, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he's using Jesus as, an ex, as a reference for forgiveness. What did Jesus do? As he was dying on the cross, he says, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't even wait for an apology. He didn't even wait for them to repent. He, his default was forgiveness. Jesus' default was to forgive. And the same should be true for you and for me. The problem is we take our cues from those who owe us. It's like, no, no, that guy, I've forgiven him three times already. Like, no, no, that's, well... Good luck with trying to forgive someone if you're taking your cues of forgiveness from the person that owes you. That's why we always look to Christ. That's what this story is about. It's not looking at the $300 that the guy owes you. It's looking at the $7 billion that the king forgave you from. We take our cues from Jesus. How do you think Stephen, when he was being stoned to death, found the strength to say, don't count this sin against them? He was looking to Jesus. And if we use anything other than Jesus as a reference, we will not find the strength to forgive either. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You may say, Pastor, I forgave them. I don't even talk to them anymore. Like, they're dead to me. Like, no, that's not forgiveness. It's not. Sorry, it's not. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44 says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. <sighs> love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here's the thing. Do you want to know if you have actually forgiven someone or not? Here's the question. I don't, I don't know if I've forgiven them or not. I feel like I might have. Okay, can you honestly pray for them? And not pray that something bad happens to them. Okay? Can you honestly pray for that person, for God to bless them, for God to be with them, for God to prosper them? Can you honestly do a heartfelt prayer for them? If you can't genuinely pray for them, then we have work to do. 
You see, for us as Christians, forgiveness is not optional. It's not optional. It has to be just like Christ, our default. Everyone stands forgiven already beforehand. So it's, it's a tough one. I understand. And so I'm going to give you one, one final thing here before we close. Um, as I said before, forgiveness for a Christian is not, op- is not optional. But it's also not intermittent. Like, I, I used to have this understanding of sin. Like, sin was, was intermittent. Like, sometimes I'm sinning, sometimes I'm not sinning. Like, like, today I committed like 14 sins, but yesterday was like 32, and tomorrow I'm going to do like four, hopefully, if I, if I do better. Like, that's what I thought. I thought that's what sin was, but until I understood that sin is not intermittent, but a condition from which there's no escape apart from Jesus, then that helps you and I understand that forgiveness has to be our default because Jesus's forgiveness is not intermittent either, but it is a constant stream that never ends. And if we want to reflect the life of Jesus in our own life, we, we need to, everyone around us like, hey, you stand forgiven already, not because you deserve it, but because I didn't deserve it and Christ still paid the full price for my forgiveness, so I want to do the same thing for you. Brothers and sisters, that is so much more powerful than giving lip service to our message. When they're like, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how she does it. It's so important for us to understand it's not an isolated condition. See, our relationships, in our relationships, having the same mindset of Christ Jesus means forgiving like Christ. So we don't, we don't analyze case by case. Oh, I don't know, this person like, hmm, let me see if I'll forgive him or not. No, no, stand forgiven already. Stand forgiven already, beforehand, right? Forgiven by default. As Christians, everyone is forgiven by default. They stand forgiven before us always because we stand forgiven before Christ always, period. So I'm gonna, we're going to pray here in a minute, but I'm going to give a little side note. So you may be having some questions right now. Hopefully this, this, this will be helpful. Forgiveness does not always mean restitution. Forgiveness doesn't always mean restitution. The restitution of a relationship takes two people. You can still forgive, even when there's not restitution. But this is our most powerful message. It's living like Christ did. I know this is challenging. I'm thinking about it myself, and I'm like, oh, I think I know what I have to do. So here's what we're going to do. We're going uh, to close our eyes, and let's... Uh, let's uh, Let's look down here with our eyes closed and heads bowed. I'm going to say a few things and then we're going to pray. I said this before, but there's a direct correlation between our understanding of the forgiveness we have received and our ability to forgive. In other words, the more you understand the forgiveness that you've received, the more you will be able to forgive. But it also works the other way. You see, sometimes in order for you to truly, fully understand the forgiveness that you have received, sometimes you need to act on what you believe. In other words, forgive someone who you feel does not deserve it. But you do it anyway. You get a glimpse 
of what you have received as well. And this lifestyle of forgiveness will allow for you and me to go way beyond just talking about the message and people being able to see in us what Christ has done. So if you need help with this, I'm going to ask if you just raise your hand and put it right back down. I'm going to do a special prayer for you. This is a challenge for you. Amen. 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 I'll pray for you guys. Thank you. Lord God, this is a, this is a tough one because this is one of those messages that has a, faces come to our minds and situations. We're reminded of situations and it makes it, makes it a very challenging um, message for, for some of us. And so I pray specifically for those hands that were raised. I pray that you will allow them to take the step that you've called them to take. And I pray, God, that this thing that we're called to do, which sometimes is very difficult, it's conversations, maybe there's a phone call, maybe it's just a, a prayer of, of releasing someone that has been um, tormenting thoughts and minds. And sometimes it's not just a one and done, but it's, it's, a, it's a process. So God, I pray that you will allow for us to do what we need to do, to rely on what you've done for us, and that you will remind us of the forgiveness that we have received. Lord God, we have been forgiven from the biggest debt that anyone could ever incur in. And you just wiped it clean. I pray that we will do the same for those who have wronged us. That we will be a living message of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.